0: Ciao amici! Welcome to Cinema Italiano, the podcast dedicated to the Italian experience, as told by film. Today, we'll be talking about Paolo Sorrentino's 2021 film, The Hand of God, or Estata la Mano di Dio. It first debuted last year at the Venice Film Festival, then came to select theaters in November 2021, before hitting Netflix Worldwide in December. It's an interesting shift from Paolo Sorrentino's other films, which include The Great Beauty, Youth, Loro, as well as the television series, The Young Pope and The New Pope, which are all centered on the very powerful, high society, politicians, bureaucrats, and even the papacy, while The Hand of God is a story about very normal, everyday people. The film follows Fabio Toschiza, a teenage boy living in Naples with his mother, father, brother, and sister. While not exactly perfect, His life is portrayed in an almost idyllic way. He has close relationships with both his parents, who confide in him, trust him, and are openly affectionate to him. As a family, they have a lot to look forward to. The parents are building them a second home, a condo in Roccarazzo, and rumors are flying around town that Diego Maradona will join the Naples soccer team. Suddenly tragedy strikes, and Fabietto is thrust into adulthood, perhaps sooner than he's ready. He has more freedom than he knows what to do with, drifting around in pursuit of a girl who doesn't notice him, going on vacation with his brother, experiencing several firsts, and ultimately finding himself as he sheds his past life and comes into his own as an adult. This dichotomy between childhood and adulthood is one of the main themes of the film, both in its plot structure with a very happy, warm first half followed by a much colder, heavier second half as tonal representations of this split. Favietto, albeit a teenager, is still a child when the film starts. He attends high school, lives at home with his parents, and is at the age where he's thinking about what to do with the rest of his life when he goes to university. He spends all his time with his family, whether at home or on outings around town or in the countryside, and watching soccer games after being gifted season tickets by his father. He doesn't have a life outside of his family unit. For that same birthday, his mother asks what he'd like, and he says that he wants zuppa di latte, literally milk soup, which reminds him of when he was little. He finds comfort and yearns for that feeling and that security that comes with childhood. Midway through the film, tragedy strikes and Fabietto's parents die in a horrible accident, forcing Fabietto, his brother, and his sister into adulthood, having to take care of themselves and to find a way forward. Even after his parents pass, Fabietto and his brother Marquino still share a bedroom, despite the master bedroom now being available. And on a trip away to Stromboli, Marquino tells Fabietto that he isn't ready to return back to Naples. He just wants to think about girls, getting high, and happiness. In the wake of tragedy, the easy thing to do for Marquino is to stay put psychologically Staying in a carefree, perhaps forced state of happiness, rather than own up to the new stage of life he's been pushed into. On the flip side, however grimly, Fabietto has accepted that his life will never be the same. When Marquino says he wants to think only about happiness, Fabietto's reply is that he doesn't know if he can ever be happy again. In a later scene, Fabietto visits his friend Armando, who's in jail. Fabietto is clearly down and feeling low, and Armando tells him he doesn't want to talk about sad stuff. Fabietto replies that then there's nothing to talk about. In the midst of this terrible period of mourning, older figures try to pull Fabietto ahead in his journey of self-actualization. After a very uncomfortable seduction by the Baroness, a neighbor of the Schiza family, she reveals to Fabietto that her mission was to get him to look to the future. Now that this threshold has been crossed, he can get his head straight and focus on what's ahead. A chance encounter with Antonio Capuano, a real-life director, also pulls Fabietto into his next stage of adulthood. Even how this exchange comes to be is somewhat telling of his new outlook. Throughout the film, Fabietto yearns for Julia, a pretty young actress around his age, but never works up the courage to actually talk to her. One day during a performance, she's heckled and runs off stage. He rushes over, presumably to console her, but when he sees her, there's already another guy already there. Instead of continuing to pine over her, it seems to click to Fabietto that it's just not going to happen with this girl. And he instead goes after the heckler himself, Antonio Capuano, in a thrilling conversation, almost like a Socratic line of questioning, Capuano pushes Fabietto to explain why he wants to be a film director and what it is he wants out of life. Fabietto says he wants to move to Rome, where there's more opportunity and potential, which Capuano counters by saying that Rome is just a distraction. He asks, do you know how many stories are in Naples? Is it possible this city doesn't inspire you at all? Capuano is also the first to call Fabietto, by Fabio, the more adult version of this name. Fabietto like a term of endearment for little kids. Harkening back to Fabietto's social circles, or lack thereof, Capuano is also one of the first people that Fabietto meets outside of his parental structure. He's not being introduced as Fabietto, as somebody's son. He's Fabio, a young man on his own. In these moments of feeling desperate and alone is where another recurring element appears, the monacello. Or little monk. We first see the little monk very early in the film. Fabietto's Aunt Patrizia is waiting for a bus in a traffic jam and is picked up in a car by a man named San Gennaro who somehow knows everything about her, including the fact that she can't have children, and he tells her that he will show her how she could become a mother. He takes her to an abandoned looking building where a stunning grand chandelier has fallen, broken on the floor. In a corner, Patrizia sees the little monk, who comes and slips money into her purse. San Gennaro asks her to kiss the little monk, approaches her from behind, then says she can now have all the children she wants. There's a couple things to unpack here. San Gennaro, or Saint Januarius, is the patron saint and bishop of Naples, which is of course where our story is set. The little monk figure in Neapolitan culture is a spirit who appears to those who are the most desperate and who have done all they can to prevent their despair after all else has failed. He beckons them to follow him, leading them to some sort of treasure. For Patrizia, she was given the treasure of being able to have children. The little monk appears once more at the very end of the film. Fabietto, having said his goodbye to his life in Naples, is on a train northbound to Rome. As the train makes a stop midway, he sees the little monk standing, hooded at the station. He then removes his hood, smiles, and waves at Fabietto. He doesn't give a physical treasure, whether cash or some ability, but his appearance is almost like an endorsement or encouragement that Fabietto, someone who indeed was in a period of isolation and despair, is now on the right path. The final sequence on the train is also striking as the film both begins and ends with transportation. The opening shot faces down into the Tyrrhenian Sea, presumably from a helicopter, and gradually pans up, where we see boats skipping across the water. The camera then zooms in to a luxury, somewhat old-fashioned looking car, which we soon come to learn is that of San Gennaro. Through each of these moments, albeit in one single shot, we hear the sound of a helicopter chopping, then the soft toof of motorboats, and then the turning of the car's wheels. It's almost like going down a funnel of scope and possibility, from macro to micro. Starting from airborne, a helicopter, capable of going far distances the fastest, followed by a motorized boat, then by a car, limited by land and roadways. We are given a literal bird's eye view as we enter Naples, and pivot into transportation and a point of view of the everyday Neapolitan in their scope of life. Throughout the film, a recurring image is that of Fabietto driving his parents around on his scooter, a vehicle even more micro than a car. Scooters reflect not only his youth as a more affordable means of transit than a car, but also reflects the zippy energy of making quick trips and getting around town easily. Fabietto even tells his new friend Armando, when riding a scooter together on the harbor, that he loves seeing Naples this way. As a young man between childhood and adulthood, this is the vessel through which he experiences his city and his freedom. To quote Enrico Casarosa's film Luca, Vespa è libertà. Vespa is freedom. The means of transit at the end of the film, the train Fabietto takes for, to travel from Naples to Rome, is much less romantic and full of life. As a means of public transit, a shared space on a set schedule, he's accessing it on predefined terms and not with the open possibilities that his scooter offers him. Even the way the scene is composed reflects the lack of enthusiasm, the stark contrast from the happier Fabietto from earlier in the film. He is facing the left-hand side, westward, and as the train moves leftward, north, the changes in countryside reflect in the window while he stays in place even falling asleep en route. On his own, he's making a move not out of the joy of exploration, but he's forced into adulthood by tragedy. The pleasures and possibilities of travel are gone in this new adult age Fabio. Fabio's transition to adulthood from childhood also plays through the different power dynamics in communities portrayed in the film. We see the structure of the extended family Playfully brought to life at a family outing at Agerola, a coastal town southeast of Naples. It's Fabietto's mother Maria's side of the family, with aunts, uncles, cousins, a great uncle, and everyone's plus ones. Most everyone is friendly, poking fun at each other, relaxed, and having a good time. Fabietto's father Saverio, though an in-law for this side of the family, is totally at ease and has command over all the nephews instructing them to keep watch for a newcomer, the new boyfriend of his wife's sister Luisella. This new boyfriend is much older, uses a voice box to talk, and is the object of ridicule and mockery by just about everyone in the family. There are also power structures within the Skiza family's home, at their apartment building. One of their upstairs neighbors is a baroness, who comes downstairs to gossip with Maria, but almost treats her like a servant, as though she's being waited on. Even though the italian nobility is all but gone in the 1980s and they all live in the same apartment building no one is actually higher status than anyone else even maria herself though exploits a sense of power pulling pranks and making fun of graziella another neighbor who's from milan an outsider living in naples no one's being repressed or seriously damaged as a result of these power dynamics. But it's interesting how they still come to the surface in these familial and living spaces where everyone theoretically should be equals these institutions both of family and living quarters are really the only sources of community fabietto can find he's in high school around young adults his own age but he still struggles to make connections on his own he even admits to his father that he doesn't have a girlfriend or any friends There's a striking moment where he's at school, standing almost dazed, totally out of sync from the boys playing soccer all around him. A few even give him nervous looks, and no real reaction comes from him. Later in the film, Armando, the only friend Fabietto makes wholly on his own, is a few years older, considerably outside of his peer group. And throughout all these structures and relationships, Fabietto is largely obedient and submissive to everyone listening intently to his mother and father, falling prey to the baroness, plus paying heed to the advice of Armando and the director Capuano, where he's being instructed on how to live and not acting on his own. In fact, his departure to Rome at the end of the film is almost an act of defiance, leaving home, shedding his childhood, fleeing Naples against the advice of Capuano as another mark of his passage from childhood to adulthood. For once, not doing as he's told. The sense of looking ahead also emanates through the film's cinematography. This is Sorrentino's first feature film with cinematographer Daria D'Antonio, with whom he's worked for short segments in the past. A striking composition that recurs is an almost keyhole effect, with an object of focus perfectly centered, with walls or barriers on either side symmetrically framing that focal point. It's like looking through a keyhole, peering ahead to see what's next, Some of the movie's most memorable imagery is this type of shot. Patrizia encountering the fallen chandelier at the beginning of the film, Fabio and his father Saverio entering the Galleria Umberto I, a covered shopping residential complex with sort of indoor piazza, and Fabietto on the shoreline as the sun rises, viewed from the dark interior walls of the Piscina Mirabilis. These moments and more are framed with intentional design like architecture, creating a sense of distance while also luring and enticing you forward as an observer, and heightening the film's theme of perseverance and continuing onward all through this visual composition. Next, I want to talk about some of the ways The Hand of God features Italian culture. In terms of food, we get two specific dishes called out. First, cannederli, which is a bread dumpling from the northeast of Italy. It appears in the film when Graziella, the Schiza family's neighbor, is chastising them for playing a prank on her. She's from Milan and is something of an outsider, and even criticizes the Schiza family for not being nice like everyone claims the Neapolitans are. This dish set on her dining table is a culinary marker of how she's an outsider in her setting beyond how she's treated by her fellow tenants. What's on her dining room table is not on the dining room table of any of her neighbors. Another dish mentioned is zuppa di latte, which Fabietto asks his mother Maria to make him for his birthday. Zuppa di latte is literally soup of milk, a creamy soup that, with some variations, typically includes milk, butter, flour, egg white, and salt. He requests it for his birthday because it reminds him of his childhood, a creamy soup that's a sort of comfort food. Some important figures who come up during the film include, of course, the soccer player Diego Maradona. Maradona is a soccer player from Argentina who is widely considered to be one of the best, if not the best, soccer players of all time. In the context of the Hand of God, the 1980s, he's rumored to become part of, and then does eventually join, the Naples soccer team. The phrase the Hand of God, of course the title of this film, originally comes from a legendary moment in soccer history. At the 1986 World Cup, in a match between England and Argentina, Maradona scored a goal by hitting the ball with his fist, which shouldn't have counted in soccer as he used his hand, but back in an era without video playback and the referees missed that precise moment where his hand and the ball made contact, the goal was officially given. Like a miraculous, divine act, it was the hand of God that enabled this score. The intervention of God is hearkened to back in the film at the Skiza parents' funeral, when Fabietto tells his uncle Alfredo that he wasn't at Roccarazzo, the site of their death, because he himself was at a Naples soccer game. Alfredo is bewildered and declares that Fabietto's fate to have stayed put in Naples and not to have met the same end as his parents was also an act of God. With Diego Maradona on the Naples soccer team, Naples became the first mainland southern Italian team to win the league catapulting the importance of Maradona as a figure for Neapolitans, including their status relative to the rest of Italy. He was almost like a liberator for the people, a champion everyone could rally behind. In fact, at the 1990 World Cup, Maradona played for his native Argentina and spoke about Neapolitans who were rooting for Argentina rather than rooting for Italy in the semifinals. He said, I don't like the fact that now everybody is asking Neapolitans to be Italian and to support their national team. Naples has always been marginalized by the rest of Italy. It is a city that suffers the most unfair racism. He's a figure who not only accomplished remarkable feats on behalf of Naples, but also truly sees the people and is aware of the inequalities they face. It's easy to see why Maradona was such an iconic figure for Neapolitans both then and now. This film also opens with a Maradona quote, I did what I could, I don't think I did so badly. This certainly echoes with Fabietto's experience, making do with a tragic situation and trying to push himself to the next stage of his life. Another real life figure in the film is Antonio Capuano, about one generation older than Paolo Sorrentino and who, like Sorrentino, is originally from Naples. Much of his work is focused on his hometown as portrayed in the film, urging Fabietto to not go to Rome and instead to tell stories of Naples. Naples as a city is almost a character itself in the film, as a vibrant, diverse setting full of possibility and potential. Some of the locales include the Piazza del Plebiscito, where Patrizia is picked up by San Gennaro while she's waiting for a bus. Fabietto and his father Saverio visit the Galleria Umberto I, a public gallery with businesses and shops on the ground level and apartments up on the upper levels. In this scene, Saverio says that he spent much of World War II at the Galleria, leaning against a column. This space is adjacent to the Piazzetta Serrao, where Saverio says there used to live a woman who would give a kiss to anyone who brings sugar, food, or anything to help. Or anything to help during wartime. Other locales include Roccaraso where the Skiza parents build their second home. It's a tourist town further inland, in the Abruzzo region, common for tourists from Naples. It's known for skiing, as referenced when Fabietto's mother invites him to go with them. You love skiing, she says. Another town visited is Agerola, where the extended family has lunch and goes out to the water, near the Amalfi coast, as well as the volcanic island Stromboli, where Marquino takes Fabietto to get away after the loss of their parents. There's also a brief scene where Fabietto and Armando go to Capri, hoping to find girls and dancing, but instead wind up in a totally empty piazza, a misfire from how they thought the night was going to go. The Hand of God is Sorrentino's ninth feature film, his first since Loro, and newest project since his television series The New Pope. He describes it as a coming-of-age story that aims, stylistically, To avoid the traps of conventional autobiography. Hyperbole, victimhood, pity, compassion, and the indulgence of pain through a simple, sparse, and essential staging, with neutral, sober music, and photography. It's certainly a less flashy piece than some of his recent work, with longer shots, fewer editing cuts, and even a sparser soundtrack. There is little music at all to be heard in this over two-hour film, and the few moments that songs do play, they're all the more striking. Some of these moments include when the song Etude 3 is played, after the scene when Fabietta was seduced by the Baroness, and he's crossed a pivotal threshold into adulthood. We see him at school, viewed from behind, moving out of sync into a totally different rhythm to the boys playing soccer around him, It's almost an out-of-body experience where he seems so distant from those around him. Another poignant song selection is "Napule," heard at the very end of the film as Fabietto rides a train from Naples to Rome. It's a song reflecting on all of the qualities that Naples is for all of its beauties and contradictions. It's almost like the echoes heard within Fabietto's own head as he reflects on his home and what it means to him. The Hand of God is also unique, especially alongside his work in the past 15 years or so, for its subject matter of a fairly typical middle-class family, not to mention a coming-of-age story with a young adult protagonist. Its striking event of being pushed into a new stage of life through a horrible circumstance is also different from his very sweeping, almost retrospective films centered on older men reflecting on life and the choices that got them there rather than from the perspective of a young adult whose life is just beginning, forging out their own future. Even tonally, while there are certainly moments of humor and poking fun, there isn't the sense of irony or biting social satire that many of his other works contain. Not that it isn't thoughtful or self-aware, but there's a much more earnest compassion and seriousness, and a real dignity given to the characters and scenario. Than some of the more cartoonish pastiches from his other works. There is genuine care for the protagonist, facing a life-changing tragedy, who is suddenly forced to act. To echo the Diego Maradona quote that precedes the film, I did what I could, I don't think I did so badly. Thank you as always for listening. Please be sure to follow us on social media, at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate and review. And until next time, Ciao Michi.